Romans chapter 5. Now, before we go, do you have a Bible? Because if you don't have a Bible, this is going to be the longest sermon of your life. If you have a Bible, it won't, okay? But if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We're not say, saying you're a heathen. We just want you to have a Bible, okay? So raise your hand. We've got the guys passing them out. A lot in the back. There's a lot more heathen in the back. I, 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 I'm just observing. I'm not, I'm not making any judgment calls here. I'm just observing. But uh, there's, there's... So make sure you guys get Bibles. They're all, all over the place here. And uh, we're going to be looking at here in Romans 5... Some, some rather technical things, some things that are, are not necessarily easy to understand at, at first glance. And we have to understand that in the mind of God, he isn't just trying to answer the questions of mankind at a kindergarten level, but he's also trying to answer the questions of man at, a, at an adult level, even somebody who's been in Christ for many years. And so when we come to to Romans 5, we're looking at some of the most difficult passages uh, in the Bible. And and really, you can't just sort of casually read it and and say, wow, that was cool. I got it. You casually read it going, did I understand a word I just read? And you read it again. And then you'll find that you have to study this. And this is what the Bible tells us, that there comes a point we have to apply ourselves as a workman in the word, to rightly divide the the word of truth. Jesus tells us up front that you're going to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, but there's going to come a place that you're going to have to love God with what? All your mind and all of your strength. And, And as we come to Romans 5, that's exactly what you have to apply today. You have to determine right now before we get going to either tune off or, uh, you know, put some music on your iPhone or something and listen to it or, or really plan on using a lot of strength there and a lot of, a lot of knowledge to get through this. And, and I, I don't think you can hear this chapter taught once and get it all. I think this is something that's going to take a, a matter of several times of, of study to, to absorb all that, that God is saying here. But we first broke down chapter 5 in the first two verses. And in those first two verses there we, we saw that we have been justified by faith uh, through the work of Jesus Christ. And we have the hope, the word hope, and in, in the Greek here is not I hope so, I've got a rabbit's foot and my fingers crossed. It's a certainty that I am going to be in a brand new body in heaven with the Lord for eternity. And then next we took verses 3 through 11. And in these verses, they had estimate, say this. You know, as we were talking about how unbelievably great it's going to be to be in our brand new bodies, in heaven, holy, pure, perfect, as he is for all of eternity, that right now you can rejoice that much on planet earth in all of your trials. Now, you, you, you sort of look at that and you, you say, I wasn't expecting that. And this is where, you know, we live on this earth. We will gain certain earthly knowledge. I mean, if you grew up in Alaska as a little kid, you probably learned to survive in the snow, right? If you grew up in Central America in the jungle, you probably learned what bugs you can't eat and what bugs will kill you and, uh, you know, how, how to live in the jungle, right? You take the boy from Alaska and put him in the jungle and Central America will probably die in five days. Take the boy from Central America from the jungle and put him in Alaska, he'll probably die in five days, right? I mean, there's certain pieces of information we have to glean just living on this planet. And probably somebody living 50 years on this planet would have gleaned more pieces of information than somebody living 10 years on this planet, right? So, I mean, we, we, we pick up certain truths just by experience, just by living. But yet, what do we discover is that There are essential things we have to know that we'll never experience. We have to learn them. We have to seek them out and find them. The proverb says like a man trying to find a buried treasure. So we have to seek after wisdom. And so as we're coming to to Romans 5 here, this is not 
information that you would have said, yeah, I already experienced that. I, I, already, I already got that just by living on planet Earth. I've already sort of figured that to be true. Not at all. This information is coming and you're going, I never would have thought that thought ever in my life. And a matter of fact, now that I think about it, I think the opposite is probably true, but yet the Bible's saying this rather than that. And so then we're at a, a crisis of saying, how do we know what's true? Is the Bible true? And if the Bible is God's word written by the creator of the heavens and the earth, he's given us these passages not to just throw extra words in to make us think about, but there's a necessity of it, then we need to come to a place and to say, even though this may be a hard concept for me to embrace or appreciate, but yet it's a necessary concept I need to make it. And we learned in verses 3 through 11 that God is in essence saying that the trials, tribulations, pains, hardships that we go through in this life, God has allowed them and in some cases even designed them that we would go through a breaking, that we would go through suffering and in that our character would change. So when we are in our new bodies with the Lord, we have greater reward. We have a greater ability to live in a fullness with God throughout eternity. And what we learn in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 11 is that God has no problem saying no. That if your, mind, your concept of God is, he's my God because he prospers me. He's my God because he heals me. He's my God because he makes my life happier. You learn in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 11, that's not God at all. He's not your magic genie. He is not submitted to your will. He's not going to give in and do what you want because you stomp your feet and scream and cry. That God is a sovereign God and that he has a plan for your life, accept it or not, this is what he's going to do because it's right. And so we ask God to stop our pain and God just out and out says no. God help me with my finances. God can say no. God help me with this difficulty relationally with my marriage or my kids. God can say no. And he will say no. I mean I I wonder if anybody could ever do the experience of, of, of hanging out with somebody. Of course video day, videotaping today is probably possible to watch a parent's raise their kids from zero to 18 and, and document how many times they tell their kids no, how many times they tell their kids yes, and how they tell their kids maybe, you know, wait, maybe later. But I would, I would guesstimate that as parents, we say no to our kids much more than we say yes. And unfortunately, we often say yes to our kids for their own hurt. We give too much to our kids and, and we, we want to bless them more than they can really handle it. And they end up becoming brats and, and a whole lot of other bad characteristics that would have been better if we said no, but we didn't. And God is saying no in a wise way. And so there, there comes to that place where, you know, I, I just sort of imagine Apostle Paul getting beaten with rods, you know, just getting hit and cracking his arm and ah, bruising this and feeling a big lump on his head and then he gets thrown into the prison handcuffed down in the dungeon now you go back in time right after the apostle started James was beheaded a few days later Peter was released from the prison it's like wow I guess James didn't pray in faith and Peter did or God liked Peter and didn't like James. I mean, what, what, do you, what do you figure out with that? That sometimes God allows people to be killed with swords. And sometimes God delivers them from the sword. But guess what? He's God either way. <laughs> and there's Paul in prison a day, a week, a month, a year, another year. And if you look at his letters, he thought, surely God's going to answer my prayer. Everybody pray with me. Get me out of here. And in essence, God kept saying no to Paul. But Paul never wavered. He just said, if I'm here, I'm stuck here. It's because God's allowing me to be stuck here. I'm a prisoner of Christ. 
There's a lot of fruit coming from my prison ministry. We, we see him very much hearing God say no to him, but yet he didn't waver in his faith to God. I think we gotta come to that place where Peter and the gang came in the Gospel of John. Remember when Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me? And the multitude freaked out. Ah, they all left. They scattered. And the apostles and the guys are standing there and Jesus says, why are you guys still here? And Peter said, we're freaked. Yeah, I'll guarantee it. This is weird. This is hard to handle. Um, Really don't know what to make of this teaching. It's just bizarre. But where do we go? We know that you're the way. Even though you're totally freaking us out right now, we know you're the way. And it's only through you is eternal life. And I, I don't know, I don't know, you know, a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, you know, how I'll be able to understand this crazy time we've had together of this teaching in John 6. But I do know I'm not letting go. Even though it's confusing at this moment to be a follower of you, Jesus even though it's sort of gross <laughs> to be a follower of your, I know you are the only way. And every one of our faith has to be challenged to that degree. And here, God tells us that he's gonna try our faith to that degree, testing it through fire. Peter said it's gonna seem so some strange thing were happening. But at the end of that, in, in Romans five eleven, we looked at last time, and not only that, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So we rejoice that we have been made righteous before him. We rejoice in our trials. And we rejoice that one day we're going to be face to face with him in a brand new body in heaven. And it's going to be very, very soon. Life at its longest length, <laughs> even if you live to be 130 it's going to seem just like a vapor of time, right? So it's, it's not like it's some thing out there we've been waiting 10,000 years and maybe another 20,000 years we'll see it. It's something that we're born and we exist for a vapor of time and then we're standing face to face with Christ. And so we have that confidence that we who have received Jesus as Lord and go through this planet Earth, whatever that may mean for us, that we will be reconciled in Jesus' arms for all of eternity. Well, now we come to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And here, if you would, is an understanding that, that God wants us to have. And if you would, it's, it's absolutely the foundation of understanding humanity. And it's the absolute foundation of understanding salvation. And so he says in chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Now we sort of got to break this apart because there's just a bunch of heavy sentences here. First of all, it says through one man sin entered the world, and he's going to go on in this chapter and tell us that's Adam. Now, the first question you might have, and you might say, well, what about Eve? Didn't she sin first? Well, in in 1 Timothy 2.14, it makes a distinction that Eve was deceived, that somehow her mind got twisted and she looked at the fruit and thought she'd be equal with God. It would make her wise. It would make her more spiritual. So when she bit into that fruit, it wasn't, in her mind, it wasn't, I'm sinning against God. It was, I'm advancing myself forward. Now, Adam was right there. He didn't persuade her. He couldn't talk her out of it. And when she said, hey, I took a bite of this, peer pressure, you take a bite of this too, Adam took the hold of that fruit going, I know God doesn't want this. He's made it clear I'm not to even be touching this thing. And I'm getting ready to bite into it, and I am now biting into it. <laughs> he knew he said. So, with, so in the Bible, you have what's called iniquity, and that's sort of the, your passions and your lust taking control and, and, and when you didn't think it was going to happen. Maybe you plan on going playing basketball this afternoon and you just plan on having a good time, but 
Before you know it, some guy slugs you and you slug him and the next thing you know, you're in this fight and the guy's going to the hospital. Now, if you ask you that morning, do you plan on putting somebody in the hospital today? You would have said, of course not. But through iniquity, <laughs> through, through anger and being surprised, you, you ended up in this horrible situation. Transgression is where, you know, you plan to rob a bank and you, you know, figure it out for three weeks before you do it. Adam clearly committed transgression. So, and plus God had made Adam first and Eve was his responsibility and, and he didn't take responsibility. So Adam is the one mostly at fault, even though Eve was the one that took the first bite. So through Adam, sin entered the world and now death through this sin. So once Adam took of that fruit, the process of dying on planet Earth began. The first significant thing about death is that they were separated from God. They were pushed out of the Garden of Eden. An angel was there not to allow them back in. And they walked out and, and they, instead of being in this lush garden with fruit everywhere, they're having to, you know, start plowing up some hard dirt and planting with some seeds and trying to make it by. It was a wrestling struggle from that point forward. They didn't walk with God every day as they did. Uh, it was, you know, when we talk about death, we're just talking about on many, many levels, you know, where, where there's, there's the f- separation from God, there's a physical thing that starts happening in the body, but there's also just the nature of sin, of selfishness and being self-consumed and greedy and lustful and evil and all of those other things that come with uh, a, a death nature that we, we have in this human body. And then he says, thus death spread to all men. Now today, with DNA, that is not a hard thing to understand anymore, is it? Because we know now with DNA, we can track it back to all mankind goes to one man and one woman. Even though in Adam and Eve, there was all kinds of nationalities within them, even though we exteriorly look at different types of eyes and hair and skin color and whatever, we know when we look underneath the skin and we look at the human body, especially at the, at the area of DNA, we are all linked. We are all related to Adam and Eve by blood, by human genomes and characteristics. We are clearly linked. And so when Adam and Eve gave birth to their son, he was born into this world as a sinner. This is, a, this is a heavy thing to, to come to understand. That right from birth, this, this little being is, is just, even though it's a precious little baby, in its nature, it's a sinner. And we, if you've had kids, you know what that's like, right? It's like, it's like the one guy said, we're glad that babies don't have the strength of an adult. Because as soon as they said, and they're screaming for milk, they would reach up and strangle their mother to death before she could get the milk in his mouth. I didn't want it 2.5 seconds ago. I wanted it now, you know. Or change my diaper. In the midst of changing his diaper, he'd kick you to death. So we're glad these little sinners are weaker than us or their, their little angry natures would kill you before you had a chance to care for them. <laughs> And then we see them and they start crawling, you know, everything that you thought was cool and precious, they destroy, right? Nice plant, let's destroy it. Nice table, let's scratch it up. And that's, we just see this little sinful nature. Now, now again, does God judge that little sinful nature the same way he would an adult mind? No, matter of fact, we know in Second. Samuel 12, when David's baby died, David said, my son shall not be coming to me, but I shall be going to him. So he was confident that this little sinful baby, God would have mercy upon him because he didn't have yet the ability to have an adult mindset in his sin. And he would go to heaven. So I'm not saying God's judging this little baby to damnation as some theologians 
and some theologies teach that they have this sin nature that has to be taken care of the moment after they pop into this world. Not so. But there is a point where God says, you are now accountable for your sinful nature and I'm gonna judge you according to that. What point that is, 12 years old or 13 or 19, we don't know. God hasn't given us that information and since he's not putting a panel together for us to judge mankind, he's gonna do it all himself. We're we're okay. We may not understand all how judgment's gonna happen, but we don't have to know. But yet we see it. So you just stop and you ask yourself, so far as we're in Romans 5, 12, is this true? One, scientifically with DNA, are we connected to our people in front of us? In other words, could my, you take a flake of my skin, could they figure out who my mom and dad are? They can, can't they? We do this on a pretty regular basis now. Some guy will say, I, I don't know if I'm really your, the dad of that baby or not, you know, prove it. And they get a DNA test and they, they prove it. But what happens when we see our kids grow up? We're going, man, that little kid's a terror. And then your mom says, the grandma says, yep, just like you at that age. I was a great kid. No, no, you weren't. That's a chip off the old block. Acting just like you talking just like you, the same attitudes, just like you, sucking his thumb, just like you. You, you realize, man, there's, there's some serious DNA. And then, you know, you see in your kids, your grandparents. There's things in our kids that I can see from my parents and my wife's parents. And they're looking at pictures of their parents. And you see in our kids going, wow, they're great, great grandparents. Look at that. That's, you know, the same eyebrows <laughs> or whatever, you know. You, you, and, and, and we could sit here and keep going on, on all the way back and it's, it starts getting wider and it starts getting, and it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And once Adam and Eve sinned, it's not a stretch for all, any of us to say when a baby's born into this world, they're born with this little angry, selfish, sinful nature. We, we can all observe that, right? Then this is important. Because in a minute, God's going to describe the spiritual world, which we cannot see and verify. And in essence, he's going to say, if what I'm saying about the physical world that you can see and verify is true, then there's no reason to doubt what I'm saying about the spiritual realm that you can't see and verify. And so on the physical world that we can see and verify... We see that all have been born in this world as sinners, and we all sin. I mean, it's only a, a very short amount of time until we're lying or doing something wrong. I remember when Renee was a, about five years old, and Nathan was three, and and uh, just left him for a minute. My, my five-year-old daughter had gotten a hold of a, a black magic marker on the piano, on the walls, on the coffee table, she had colored her brother up pretty good there, you know. I mean, just black magic marker that doesn't come out, you know. And she's got black all over her hand where she held it like this. And I walk down and she's looking at the colored book, you know, black all over her and her brother and everything else. And I said, Renee, did you get a hold of the black magic marker? No! I mean, just very convincing. And I said, but look on the wall. (gasps) I told Nathan not to do that. (laughs) You know, there's no way he's going to get that cap off. And there's no way that, you know. And I'll tell you, I, I did everything I could. She never admitted it. And finally, I just said, you know what? You're so convincing and you're lying, but I know it has to be you. And so I am going to discipline you for doing this. And, you know, there was always that question of doubt in my mind because she never admitted to it. And then years later, we brought up the story, and she goes, yeah, man, I really colored everything. And I said, you admit it. You're admitting it. She goes, yeah, you said you already knew. I said, yeah, but I didn't. You know, I sort of knew. You were convincing. Oh, yeah, I did that. 
So they're going to all sin. They're going to eventually reveal how good of a liar they are or how ornery they are or mean they are. And there in Romans 5.13, he goes on, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Now this verse is a powerful verse because in estimation, people want to say this. The Judeo-Christian ethic says something's wrong and the only reason it's wrong is because they say it's wrong. I remember I was doing to every man an answer and I got a phone call in and the guy basically asked this question. If God were to appear right now and say, homosexuality is not a sin, then would it not be a sin? Is the only reason it's a sin because God said so? And see, that's, that's a good question because that's the way most people think. That God said it and now it's sin. Let me tell you something. If God never said a word, sin would still be sin. And it would still separate us and it would still destroy our life. God told us it was sin to help us in our own foolishness and our own self-deception to know clearly that this is sin. So in other words, before Moses gave the law and God said, thou shalt not commit adultery, we could go back from Adam to Moses and just simply say we've been made in the, aim, in the image of God. And in the image of God, when are we the most free? When are we the most blessed? When are we the most blessing to others? So here I am, you know, sometime before the law was given. And I have this marriage and I, I basically say, I have a sense that God's a God of commitment, of purity, of, of, of devotion, of love, of, you know, even in hard times, you still stay committed to that person. And, and, and these things are in me, even though my flesh is fighting against it, the, the, the conscience and the nature of God is still written upon my heart. And so I, I, I'm faithful. And guess what? My wife's blessed when I'm faithful. And there's a trust growing in the relationship. And there's a joy in the relationship. And the kids see our commitment to one another and our love for one another. And and it blesses them. Now, let's change that. I'm there going, you know what? I have this desire to have sex with multiple people. And who's to put on me that that's wrong? There's no law written anywhere. There's, no, there's nothing that forbidding that. And so I began to, to be unfaithful and to cheat. What happens to that marriage? It begins to break apart. It begins to fall apart. There's not the love. There's not the devotion. There's not the commitment. The kids are looking on. They're not blessed. They're injured. They're hurt. And so I could stand back and say both scenarios without there being a law, but yet I can see the, the product. And I can, I, without even seeing it, I could imagine it. I could imagine going down that road and, and thinking about the hurt, thinking about the unhappiness that that would bring, and to say, I'm not going to make that decision because even though my flesh wants that, I can see what it's going to develop. And so here, here's the lie of today. Freedom is when I can do whatever I want. Guys, it is not freedom. It always brings bondage. Freedom is when you can do what's right, and the easier it is for you to do it right, the more freedom you have. So the guy who says, man, I just won the lottery. I won $350 million. Now I can drink all the alcohol I want to drink. I never have to go to work. And he just starts filling up his garage with all kinds of alcohol. He's drinking all the time, giving all the alcohol to his friends. He's got more than enough money. And now I'm free because I don't have to work and I can drink all the alcohol I want to drink. Now, is that going to produce freedom in him? Just ask yourself, what kind of life is that going to give him? What kind of characteristic is that going to give him? What kind of fruit is going to come from his life? How is that going to affect his marriage, his family, his neighbors. You, you see, by him saying, I can do whatever I want brings me freedom, it actually brings him bondage. Physically, we can see it. 
Because after a few weeks of this, he starts waking up at 9 o'clock in the morning with the shakes going, ah, I need a beer. You know, egg, ah, beer, ah, okay, and I'm stopping my, and, and he, he begins to realize my body's craving more alcohol than my body can handle, and I'm in trouble physically. But he's done so many foolish things, it's completely torn down all the trust and all the communication in his marriage. The children and the friends and everybody looking on don't want to be around the drunk. So you can see there that being able to do whatever you want doesn't bring you freedom. But being able to do what's right is what brings freedom. So again, you you could take that in any area, whether it's sexuality, whether it's um, to say whatever you want to say or be as angry as you want whenever you want to be. In the name of you being able to do whatever you want brings bondage to everybody else and just tears down relations. And so just because the law wasn't written, thou shalt not be an alcoholic or thou shalt not be an adulterer or thou shalt not be a liar, yet we could see that that particular vice or lifestyle brought destruction. But then finally the law was written and then it's imputed. Clearly it's been said and you can see it said and you still transgressed. And so again, it would just one more point on this to make it clear. Sin is sin because it's sin. If God never said anything about it, it would still bring destruction because it's outside of his nature. We are the most free when we're walking in the nature of the God who created us. So it'd be like my kids around a campfire and they're all playing with the, the, the fire and the logs with their sticks and I say to them, I say, hey, you know, be careful, don't get so close, everybody step back. I don't want you to get burned by the fire. And then I walk away for a minute and all of a sudden, one of my kids comes and kicks me in the leg and I'm so mad at you. Well, why, why are you mad at me? Because I got burned after you left. And if you had not said the fire was hot, I never would have been burned. Before you said the fire was hot, it never burned us. It was only after you said the fire was hot that we got burned. You know what? Whether I said anything or not, you were still going to get burned by the fire. The fire is hot. It has nothing to do with, with what I said or didn't say. I said what I said because I love you and I want you to be protected But if I didn't say anything, then I just would have been a horrible dad. In the same way, if God didn't give us the law, it just means he's a horrible God. But because he loves us and wants us not to get burned by the fires, he warns us of the fires. But the fires are hot, whether God said it or not. Sin is sin, righteousness is righteousness. Well, going on here in verse 14... Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned against, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is the type of him who was to come. And so, again, here we begin to to see now the mention of a second Adam. And so, from Adam to Moses, before the law was given, uh, sin continued in the likeness of the nature of, of the first man, Adam, that Adam means humanity, who's a type of him who would become. There is another Adam that would come, that would change this in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died. Now look at these two important words in verse 15. Much more. The grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So we just need to step back and ask ourselves how horrible is the sin nature of man throughout the world? How, how permeating is it? And we look at it, and every one of us, we have this sin nature to want to do everything wrong whether it's lie or lust or be angry or 
unfaithful or selfish. I mean, we, it's in our flesh screaming every second of every day, isn't it? And it's in you and it's on, in the guy on the opposite side of the planet. It's in the guy with a little loincloth out in the middle of the jungle. <laughs> and it's in the guy in the three-piece suit downtown New York. It's in all of us. And so we see how perfectly it has affected everybody. Now, why is this important? Because he says, as permeating as that is in the first Adam, the work of Jesus Christ is much more permeating than the sin nature. That God is offering you a righteous nature through Jesus Christ that is as permeating as your sin nature is, the righteous nature is more, more so, much more. The gift, the grace of this one man is wanting to abound in his righteousness through you. And in verse 16, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. And so here again is something explained to us that we would never figure out on our own. So we have one sin of Adam and it permeated into every person born causing all of us to be condemned. In other words, when the baby is born into the world, he's not a saved creature and then he becomes at 13 unsaved and then he just gets saved again at some point in his life. He's unsaved. And that little sin nature is just hurting his little conscience and causing him to cry. You know, he gets all angry and hits the other kid in the head with the sandbox and then he's all hurt and upset and goes, cries. You know, he, he realizes his selfishness. He realizes his anger. He grows up at five years old and eight years old knowing you know, he's just so hurt and bothered by this sin nature. And, and we're watching this and we, we realize this nature is getting worse. It's growing. It's, it's becoming more distinct. It's becoming, as he gets stronger, it's becoming more dangerous. And we realize that through that one sin of Adam, everybody is permeated with this radical condemning sin nature. And that we need to understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior. I remember when I was four years old in Mrs. Stoops' class in Sunday school. And I don't remember the whole story, but I just clearly remember her saying, if you know you're a sinner, if you know you've lied, and I was four years old, I've lied. If you know you've been mean, I've been mean. And there she went through some sins, you know, and, and I was convicted. And she says, Jesus wants to take those sins away and put a spirit in your life. And I can remember at four years old, just, you know, I was a church kid, but I'm willing to admit that even going to, to church for four years hadn't yet saved me. <laughs> and I needed to be saved. And I'll tell you, the Lord came into my life. But then when I was 12 years old, my family just walked away from God for three years. We lived like we had never known Christ. Didn't go to church, didn't mention the Bible. It was like, I, I'm talking about confusion. It's like all we had in our life was God for the first 12 years of my life. Then it was just like, forget it. We don't want God in our life anymore. Those midlife crisis can really get you guys. Be careful. Not mine. I was only 12. But uh, my parents divorced in a U-Haul somewhere between Texas and Arizona coming back and it was God drawing to himself but it was just, I saw two complete different worlds. One where Christ was the charge of that world and I saw another one where man's own desires and, and thoughts and philosophies and theories and theologies dominated and I, I knew I could not live without Christ being the Lord of my life. And in that U-Haul, I just surrendered my life to Christ. And the time we got back to California, I had never turned since then. And there's a point where you, you, you come to realize, okay, I can see this. 
I can see the effects of sin in my life, in everybody's life. I can see it. I can see the chaos it's bringing across the planet, wars and destructions and people starving to death. And I mean, it doesn't take any imagination to see how devastated our planet is from just man being sinful. Is this, is this true? So God is now saying, you can't see it in the spiritual realm. But there is a more powerful force than the sinful nature of man, and that is the righteousness of God. And that righteousness of God, as much as you can see the power and the effect of sin, you can see the power and the effect of God's righteousness in your life, and not just over one sin of Adam, but upon over all sins. That all the offenses that man have committed, the end of verse 16, are now resulting in justification, just as if you've never sinned. So when a person surrenders their life to Christ, it's not just believing the right thing. I had somebody ask me this week going, so if I agree with you, I'll go to heaven? I said, no. I said, that would be like saying, if I get married, then I'm married? No, I mean, if you go to Las Vegas and you meet some girl saying, hey, will you walk into the Elvis uh, Presley Chapel with me and let's get married and hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm so-and-so, okay. We get married and then we walk out and never see each other again. Do you have a marriage? You may have a wedding for 10 minutes and you don't know anything. That's not, God's not wanting you here to, to have a wedding and then to leave. He's, at, he's offering you a marriage where you surrender your life to his will, to, even though it's, it's foggy and confusing through this world of sin, yet you can see the narrow road that leads to life, purity, honesty, a life of morality. And even though my flesh is screaming in many different ways to get off that narrow road that leads to life, I know freedom, blessings to God, to myself, to my man, fellow man. It's when I'm in the center of that narrow road, walking in the nature of God who created me. And so in verse 17, for if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, here it is again, these two words, what is it? Much more. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, notice what will happen. They will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And this is where I, I, I hate religion. This is where I hate churchianity. Because you, you, you can get people in a room and they're going through this religious stuff and they think it's the same as submitting their life to Christ on a daily basis. And so you get all of these people that aren't really committed to God, but they'll endure some worship songs and a sermon just so they can hurry and get out and go do what they really want to do. And their life is not reigning in Christ Jesus. Their next door neighbor looks at him going, I'm as good off as you are, even better. I don't see any righteousness in you. I don't see any love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I don't see the fruit of God reigning in your life. The love of Christ reigning in your life. And this is where, if you look through church history, you have this thing where eventually religion so saturates the reality of walking with Christ, it eventually dies and a movement pops up out in the middle of some park somewhere or in somebody's house or some warehouse where people are really receiving Christ, not some easygoing religion with comfortable pews and air conditioning. And this is where you need to stop as a believer and and ask yourself, Christ said in a realm that I cannot see, but if I'm a born-again believer here today, I should be receiving an abundance of grace. I should be walking in a gift of righteousness. And I should be having a life reigning in life. Where life is coming from you through the one, one way, There's no other way into salvation. There's no other way that your sinful nature can be conquered. There's no other way that God's spirit can live in your life and you become a new creature. There's one way, and that's through Jesus Christ, who is death and resurrection. And verse 18, 
Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. We all can see that and know that, right? Resulting in condemnation. Even so, notice this, equals to, in the spiritual realm we can't see, exactly in the same way, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So just ask yourself here, the, the beginning of this passage, what we can see. Do we see the horrible of offenses that's come and the judgment on mankind, the condemnation on mankind that we see today through hate and prejudice and anger and unfaithfulness and greediness? And we, we, can, we can see it. We're all touched. We've all been burned by this fire, haven't we? Okay, it would be like this. If I had a map of the United States and I took off for a couple of months and I used the map to, to travel the southern part of the United States, then I folded that map up and I put it in my glove box and somebody said, hey, I'm getting ready to travel for two months going over the northern part of the United States. Could I pull that map out and say, use this map? I used it for a couple of months, every highway, every town, every gas station, Every toll road that it mentioned on here was right. Well, have you used it to travel northern America? Well, no, actually I haven't. Then how do you know? Because it worked perfectly on the southern part of the United States. I'm confident the author of this whole map didn't get the southern part 100% right and got 0% right on the northern part. I'm confident that 100% of the other part of the map is correct also. And what I'm saying here is if you look at man and, and what God says about man and, and his sin and his condemnation, it's 100% right. Why wouldn't the other part that we can't verify because we have to go into the spiritual realm? Somebody says, well, can you prove to me there's a heaven or hell? No, you'd have to die and leave the body uh, to to be, have a non-material body to see heaven or hell. Well, how do you know it exists? It exists because the Bible has hundreds, thousands of names, cities, battles, how many chariots and how many kings reigned. And in this order, there's so many details the Bible gives that it doesn't need to give, but it does. So now we can look through archaeology and history and we see every time the Bible's right. And if it's right in all these hundreds of historical things we can verify, why would it be wrong in the things we can't verify. It was right about Jerusalem. Why would it be wrong about heaven? <laughs> it was right about, you know, Babylon. Why would it be wrong about what God says about angels or hell? Okay, you can't travel to that part on the map. <laughs> you have to leave this body. But if it's right on all the places I can travel, why would it be wrong on the place I can't travel? It's, it's accurate and, and unfortunately, I'm I'm going to win this argument because 100% of everybody dies. (laughs) And you will see hell or heaven. It's not a matter of winning this argument. It's a matter of when I win this argument. And so if we can just agree together to say, Adam's sin has 100% affected 100% of us and 100% of us are going to die. Then... God says, trust me in what I say about the other. That even though, the end of verse 18, even though one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. In verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Verse 20, moreover, the law, which is the topic we're gonna be talking about in chapter six and seven, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound or that sin became utterly sinful. So if there was a question in your mind about the lying, is it right, is it not right? God said not to lie, now it's clear. But then the second part of verse 20, probably one of the most important sentences in the whole Bible. Romans 5, 20. But where sin abounded, or let me say it this way, where sin is devastating you. Grace abounded much more. God's grace will 
be greater in the power over the sin. And see, that's where we have hope as Christians. I'm still in this body I inherited from Adam. But the Bible tells me that much more, as the nature of Adam is cursing me, much more the righteousness of Christ is blessing me. And then finally in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So just as we see sin comes into the world and then we see the effects of sin causing people and all of their lustfulness and anger and self-seeking and then their body starts falling apart and, and then they eventually physically die. We can see the pattern at 100% of everybody. In the same way you can know that if you will receive the grace of God, that 100%, Jesus says, all who receive me, I will take them unto myself and of them I will lose none. All who come unto me, I'll have them in my hand and of them I'll lose none. We see that God is saying that my grace is more powerful than Adam's sin. That my righteousness is greater than Adam's condemnation. And what Adam has done to your physical body, my grace much more can do for your eternal body. And the answer is through Jesus Christ. And so we're here today and this is where the the moment in time comes. Do you get on board the train or not? (laughs) You gotta come to that place to say, that's me, I agree with the Bible says. It's true, it is God speaking to me that I'm a sinner in need of salvation. The Bible says if you'll confess you're a sinner, then Jesus Christ will be faithful and righteous to forgive you of sin. That salvation is not something you earn or work for, it's a gift of God. How do you receive the gift? When you surrender your life to him. Not in a wedding, but in a marriage. Not for Sunday mornings, but for every moment of every second of all your life. Lord, you are the God who created me, and from this point forward, I'm walking on the narrow road that leads to life. And I submit myself to your will, your way, and I'm gonna fight this old sinful body inherited by Adam, because now your spirit lives in me, much more your grace, your righteousness, your justification will reign in me, just like that old sinful nature from Adam's been keeping me down, that now as your spirit enters into me, life will reign more than death. Amen.